starting in chapter 3 tonight. And as we begin tonight, something to be thinking about is an introduction. The Bible talks about a potential, even a probability of outward comfort, yet inward decay. We actually see that in the book of Revelation at the church at Laodicea. And that is a model for the church and the condition of the church before the church is taken out. So what's that model? It's a a model where there's a lot of outward looking religious stuff, but Inwardly, the devotion, the fervency, the fire, the desperation, the passion, all those sort of things are missing. But outwardly, it looked great. And the reason it looked great outwardly is because of the material things that have replaced the spiritual things. And that's really what a lukewarm condition is. And Jesus said that if you're lukewarm, what would happen? Yeah, he'd spew you out of his mouth. Why? Why did he say that? Because when somebody's lukewarm, and and I don't know if you've noticed this yourself. I bet you have, and I and I hope and pray to God that you're not lukewarm. Because lukewarm is a, a condition where somebody thinks they're okay for all the wrong reasons, and they're really not, and th- that's a concern, and. A person in that condition, you can't, it's, you can't really witness to them. Because they think you need to witness to other people. You can't share God with them. You can't share truth with them. Because in their mind, they don't think they need that. And the reason is, again, is because of the outward materialistic condition makes them think incorrectly that they're okay with God. So that's a that's an important warning. And the reason I want to introduce our section of Scripture to you tonight like that is because that's nothing new. And the children of Israel in Hosea were in a condition where outwardly they were doing well. And outwardly doing well, as we are learning, is not a good benchmark for spiritually being healthy. And God is going to great lengths to try to reach them. Radical lengths. And I want you to be thinking about in your own life is, is what is God doing to get your attention these days? And how has God gotten your attention? And as, as I read the book of Hosea, I see that, that God is willing to go to great lengths, even using a prophet named Hosea, who God asked to marry a prostitute. That's quite a charge. That's quite a commission that he's given. And so he does that. And why would God do that? Because he loves the children of Israel so much, he wanted to get their attention. And when we're lukewarm, it's so hard to get our attention. It's so hard. And, and 
you know, in our country, there was something called the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening really was people that are Christians awaking up to their faith more than anything. So a lot of times we talk about revivals, right? And we want all these people to get saved. And I think that's good. But I think also what is necessary is that people that are believers, that they wake up. And we live in a time where we're almost given these softball lobs. You know, it's like something easy to hit. God is is lobbing these softballs to us so that we'll be able to see the reality of the condition of this world. So we're constantly being aware of this. But we have to connect the dots. When the church doesn't connect the dots, when the church doesn't see what the real problem is, that problem is a problem that the church has with God. The Bible says that judgment begins with the house of God. So let's just start with the church. And let's not start with pointing at another church. Let's just start with us. And let's just say, Lord, am am I what you want me to be? Lord, am I awake to the reality of this world? Am I dialed in to your agenda? Am I living my life according to your will? Am I surrendered to you? Those are all the things we have to ask ourselves. And so Hosea was called to be this radical illustration of the children of Israel's true condition. Their true condition was that, like Hosea, who was to marry a prostitute, they were married to the world. And this is where we start to get into some very important things in in our understanding of what God's will is and how we're actually practically to live out our Christian life. As we live out our Christian life, we have to understand what is the right association that we're to have with the world and do do we have too much of the world in us are we motivated too much by the things of the world are we clinging to the things of the world these are things we have to consider and we're going to go through all this tonight so we're in chapter three and in chapter three we're going to go through three and four tonight three is really short and as we go through these chapters remember this That God loves us so much, He's constantly trying to get our attention. Are we listening? Are we aware? Are we surrendered? Do we want His will? So let's start off chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover. And is committing adultery. Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. Who look to other gods. And love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So that was just raisin cakes like pressed grapes that they would offer to false gods as an act of worship. So what the Lord is saying. If you really let this sink in, if you really allow the feeling and the emotion of this scripture to grab your heart, I believe this is what the Lord wants to do through the book of Isaiah. He wants our emotions to be captured as to the reality of how God pursues us. 
So God has, has already called Hosea to marry a prostitute. And he does. And that marriage resulted in, in three children. Jezreel, which means scattered, or so. So it's kind of thinking, thinking of a farming term, scattering seeds or sowing seeds. And then the second son was Ruhama, which means pitied or loved or mercy. And the third son was Ammi, A-M-M-I. And that means my people. The only thing is that these last two children were to have L-O put in front of their names, which cancels out their name. So, Lo-Ruhama. That second child was no mercy, no love, no pity. And then the uh, third child was Lo-Am-I, which is not my people. And God was saying through these names, these are message names, like so often we see in the Bible. It's, a, it's interesting to dig into and see what these names mean. So these were message names. These message names were to send a signal to the children of Israel. So here we have Hosea, which his name means salvation. And he married a prostitute, Gomer. And this is an illustration of God's pursuing love. So in this scenario, Gomer is like like the children of Israel, but we can also relate to this scenario. We are also Gomer. We are also those who are have rejected God, resulting in our need for his love and his mercy. And so as this picture is painted, we saw in chapter 1 and 2, woven into this judgment of God was also the mercy of God and the redemption of God. It was also the faithfulness of God. God pointing to a time where he would keep his vow to the nation of Israel and that is yet to come in the future. But now we see this benefactor, Gomer, the prostitute, the wife of Hosea, we see her character now as she was taken as a wife and loved as a wife, she went astray, she went away, she left her first love. And not only did she just leave, that she went to other lovers. And as we sort of flesh this out a little bit more, what we find is that she actually left for monetary reasons. She wanted more money. She didn't, she wasn't satisfied with the care of her husband. She wasn't satisfied. She wanted more. And so she used her body to go out and gain more money through prostitution. And God is telling Hosea, go after her. Go after her. Pursue her. And notice on Gomer's end, she's not repentant. She hasn't come to a place where she's at the end of herself. 
that she hasn't come back and, and apologized, but she's involved in this betrayal currently, and God's going after her through Hosea. So in verse 2 it says, So I bought her for myself. So he had to buy her back, his own wife. His own wife that he was providing for, taking care of, that left for other lovers that she had desired to gain more money from. Now he had to buy her back. And it says that he had to buy her back for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. In Exodus 21.32, it says the price of a slave was 30 shekels. This is a good indication that Hosea only had the 15 shekels. And so he had to also give the barley to make up for the lack of the 15 shekels that he had. He basically emptied all of his resources to get get her back. Isn't that an amazing picture of God? In Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says we've been bought with a price. And that price was precious. It was, it was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. While we were sinning. While we were betraying God. We have this picture that's painted of how much God loves us and is willing to buy us back. This is redeeming. If you want to look at the theology of redemption, this is what it is. We, we've been bought back. We've been bought back with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 3 it says, And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot. And this is a, a picture of repentance and restoration you remember Jesus with the woman at the well? She was restored and redeemed. And he said, go and sin no more. Actually, that was the woman caught in the act of adultery. He said, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. And John the Baptist talks about bearing fruit worthy of repentance. So the idea that we can make some sort of acknowledgement of our desire to be saved without actually bearing the fruit of our salvation is not correct. And it doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means that we're born again, we have a new nature, and that new nature desires to walk with God. So there's fruit that comes out of a tree that's rooted in God. And so... He buys her back and he says, now you're, you're going to stay with me. And notice he says, you're going to, going to stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. And so too, I will be toward you. So this is what a relationship with God is like. 
It's a commitment to a personal relationship. And so God paints this picture as an illustration to the children of Israel as a husband and wife. And he paints a a, a picture for the church. So remember, the church is not Israel. For the church, we are considered the bride of Christ. Same sort of idea, but that's how we have to think about our relationship with God. We, We have to think about it's personal, it's intimate, it's a covenant. It's a covenant based on love. It's a covenant then that that we enjoy the love of God and He enjoys our love back to Him. So that's what God is desiring for us. Now think about it practically. I don't know, you know, a lot of people don't think about their relationship with God like that. The way people can try to connect with God other than through a personal relationship with Him usually has to do more with legalities, rules, regulations, good doing, thinking they're trying to please God in this way. And what we're finding in in Hosea, he gives us this amazing picture, completely demolishing this idea of our own worthiness. And as he demolishes that idea of our own worthiness, we have to be people that first recognize our own worthiness, but we go on to receive God's goodness. That grace of God. The enjoying the grace of God. And and boy, that was been so hard for many aspects of the church over the ages. Uh, Things where they would beat their bodies to try to make God like them better and torture themselves and freeze themselves and and go through all these things to, to try to make God like them and love them more and accept them more and and all these things. And that's really how the Reformation came about. It came about because Martin Luther was one of those guys. And he was miserable. And then he read in the Bible that the just shall live by faith. It was like this burden taken off of him. He realized he can be right with God, not by works, but by faith. But we see this in the Old Testament. This is what we're seeing here. So um, in verse 4, when God uh, is sharing this story with us through Hosea, he's talking about the children of Israel, Israel shall be with, for many days they will be without a king or a prince, without a sacrifice or a sacred pillar, they will be without an ephod or a teraphim, which was a false idol. So what is he talking about? So this gets back into that framework that we had in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 30. This is Daniel 9, 26. This is talking about this period of time where Israel will no longer be able to have a temple to make sacrifices, to have a high priest, to go through those rituals that were given to them in the, in the Old Testament. They weren't, there's going to be a time, he's saying here, right here, there's going to be a time you're not going to be able to do that anymore. And we are now living in this time. We are living in this time where Israel was 
given so much by God, first of all, in the journey through the children of Israel, through the tribes, and then they were in Egypt, and they were told how long they would be there, right? Then they were restored, or or they developed outside of there, and then after that, they strayed from the Lord again, and they were deported, and then they were told again how long they're going to be out for 70 years this time, and they were brought back. But then in 70 A.D., that was when the temple was destroyed, and now we're living in the time now where the temple that we're living in this time. So you can go to the Temple Mount now, and there's not a temple. There's not sacrifices. There's not high priests. There's there's a Muslim mosque there. So what he's saying is there there's going to be that time. But watch this. Afterward. It's another one of those words, another indication of sequencing. So afterward, after what? After this time where nothing's going to be happening as far as your religion, which, which by the way, in 90 AD, so 20 years later after the temple was destroyed, the Jewish priests came together and developed their religion without the sacrifices of animals. It just became a pleasing God by works. So that's where they're at now. But he says afterward. So there's there's going to be a time when there's no temple, no sacrifices, no high priest. But after that, it says, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord, their God, and David, their king. Remember, David is going to be set up as the king in the millennial kingdom. It says, they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Interesting, huh? So this plays all into those prophecies that we've been talking about on this past Sunday and in Daniel and all these things where the, the nation of Israel is going to be what God has called them to be, and that's going to be in the millennial kingdom. And that's what that's talking about. So, chapter 4, moving right along. So now he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. Now, I always, when I when I hear, say, hear that phrase, hear the word of the Lord, it always makes me really dial in. Hear the word of the Lord. Okay, what are you going to say? He says, you children of Israel. So he he calls them out. He calls them by name and he says, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. So this, imagine a court scene now. This is a court scene that the children of Israel are going to be put on trial now. And when they're on trial, this is interesting because it reminds me of the great white throne judgment not exactly the same but it just that's kind of a a a courtroom scene and we have a lot of illustrations and uh, ways to think about our judgment in a in a legal way and this is and that that you know when we talk about the term justification justification is a legal term where God justifies us and he declares us innocent. So th- this is 
this is, you're coming before me. You're going to be held accountable for your actions. And remember the context. The context is outwardly they're doing great. Materialistically. So think about it like this. They were very strong in the world and in the things of the world. Very weak in the things of God and the things that really matter. It reminds me of how so often the Lord says you, can, you can't serve two masters. So often the, the Bible really paints this picture of two kingdoms. Kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. And we have to make that clear cut decision. The problem that we make a lot of times is it's not clear cut. It's a mixture. And that's exactly what the children of Israel were doing. They were mixed. It wasn't clear cut. So how does that look for us as as believers? It basically looks like our life is completely devoted to the Lord, surrendering to the Lord, and yet as people who live here in the world, we still do stuff, right? And God calls us to do stuff, to have jobs, to have families, to work, to go to school, to do whatever it is. But see, we're to do whatever we do is unto the Lord. That's how it works. It's very important we don't section off aspects of our life. That's my work life. That's my home life. That's my school life. That's my recreation life. Instead, what we're to do is, we're the Lord's. We owe Him everything. We live for Him. And so as we do the things that we do, we do it as unto Him. As we do it as unto Him, now we are living according to the purpose that He's called us, and we're not segmenting our life into different segments of our life, which is exactly what the children of Israel were doing. They were still doing temple type of worship. But then they're doing other worldly stuff. Really bad stuff. We're going to see that because they're on trial now. So he says, here's, here's the, here's the complaints against them or the charges against them. He says, there is no truth or mercy. Or knowledge of God in the land. So there's the first charge. And it's interesting because he says there's no truth there. So what, what is always the battle that we see in every age is the battle for truth. This is what the science of philosophy is all about. It's... Where does truth come from? This is what epistemology is. Where do, what is truth? Where does it come from? What's the origin? And so this is what God is indicting them. He's, he's saying there's no truth. But do you think they thought they had some truth? I do. Of course they, we all do. But we have to ask ourselves, where's this truth coming from? Right? Because... We can 
say we have the truth, but is the truth just from our own experience? Is that what we call truth? Think about it. Why do we think the way we think and why do we do the things that we do? Where is the origin of those things? What is the source? So the Lord was looking at them and he was saying there, there's no truth. In other words, they didn't look to a source of truth outside of themselves. And think about it, the children of Israel had been given so much truth. They were the recipients of the original truths of God. Through Moses, through the Ten Commandments, through the prophets, through God speaking to them directly. And yet that wasn't good enough for them. This is the struggle every generation has. Where is that truth going to come from? This is what is a battle that we are facing, each of us, all of us. We're, we're facing, why do I believe that? Where is this coming from? And how do I know it's true? And as God looks at it, would he be able to say, when I look at Calvary Chapel Flower Mound, I see truth. How would he say that? How would he be able to say that? It's because he sees people with their Bibles in their hands. It's because he sees not only people with Bibles in their hands, but people with Bibles in their hands that say, we believe this is true. We believe that God is true and every man is a liar, including myself. I can't trust myself. I can't trust my thoughts. I can't trust my decisions. So I have to come to God's word and say, what do you have to say about this? And how does this truth yield itself and bring light onto my situation practically. That's what it's all about. But notice, it's interesting because he says truth and mercy. So he didn't see truth there. And then he doesn't see mercy. We seem to, in a lot of the problems in our society today, have to do with some ideas that mercy and truth are not compatible. And so, whatever side you shade on in your flesh, some people are are more just truth, straight shooters, cut it straight type of people. Other people are really merciful and and kind and and generous. And when we think those are one or the other, we don't understand that God's love is all mercy and all truth. But we can also fall in the trap. This is why we have to be so careful because we can fall into this trap where we're, we're going in our mercy beyond what God does. Well, we're, we're thinking we're more merciful than God. That we're more caring and kind and loving and tender than God. And so our, our compassion can be misplaced. How is our compassion misplaced? It's when we put our compassion above the truth. So in, in some instances, a person 
that doesn't have the truth of God, which is all truth and all mercy, what they do is they have compassion, but then they have to throw out the truth. And they think that's compassion. So they embrace all sort of ideologies that are not of the truth in an act of what they think is mercy. And what it ends up being is not merciful at all. So as people who are people of God and God's children, when we have mercy, that means we want people to be right with God. That's what true mercy is. We have the ministry of reconciliation. We don't say, you know what, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter your sin. It it doesn't matter. God loves you anyway. See, God loves us so much that he wants us to repent of our sin. Right? Like the woman caught in the act of adultery. Your sins have been forgiven. Then what does he say? Go and sin no more. He doesn't say go back into your sinful lifestyle and keep it up. It doesn't matter because God's covered your sin. So when mercy drowns out truth and doesn't care about a person being free by the truth, which sets us free, doesn't care about a person being in a right relationship with God, then what happens is that mercy actually becomes an act of pride. Where people become self-righteous because they are using mercy in a selfish, self-centered way that is anti-God and anti-really the person that we're being or think we're being merciful to. But we can be on the other side too, right? We can have the truth but be so harsh and not tender and compassionate and loving towards that person. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you give your body to be burned for the Lord but have not love, you wasted your time. So uh, there's a balance there. The balance is solved when we are yielded to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's in control because he's going to love people and he's going to bring people the truth. And that truth may convict them and make them mad at you. But that's loving because the truth is loving, even if the truth hurts. So God's looking at a, a place where there's no truth and there's no mercy. And then he says what the root of that is. He says, or knowledge of God in the land. That's really the root of it. No knowledge of God. In Proverbs 1.7, it says, The fear of the Lord is what brings the knowledge of God. So you see this whole complex, which in the, the just these few little words here, you can make that assessment of our own society. There's a problem with mercy. There's a problem with truth. And that's all stemming from no knowledge of God. And it starts with the church. The church is to be that influence on the world. We shouldn't necessarily be the ones that are just pointing at the world because the world's going to do what the world does. The church should not do what the world does. And so we have to look at ourselves and say, are we being the church? 
Are we being merciful? Are we bearing truth? Are we first living that out? And then are we also compassionately sharing those things? Because people are messed up. People need Jesus. The opportunity is just so great right now. So he says, now he continues with the indictment. He says, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery. Pretty much sounds like the movies. You think about this. People, there's a whole industry that people pay money to watch this. Isn't that amazy? A whole movie industry, a whole entertainment industry. I guess the whole would be maybe an exaggeration, but probably pretty much. Unless you have pure flicks or something. But this people make a living off this. And not only that, music. So he's God's seeing this land, a land that doesn't have God anymore. And and what happens? When the knowledge of God is is pushed away, not that they couldn't know. It, it wasn't like they're not smart. It was they didn't want to know. They they didn't want God involved, and so in comes the world. It says they break all restraint. Isn't that interesting? They break all restraint, meaning that they're, 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 we can get to a point without God where there's no limits anymore. It reminds me of Jeremiah 6.15. In Jeremiah, who Jeremiah was prophesying to the southern uh, Judah, the southern part of the total nation of Israel, which was split at this time. And he was saying that the southern nation of Israel, they couldn't blush anymore. And, and, and what that means is blushing is an emotional autonomic nervous system response. Why is it called autonomic nervous system? Because an autonomic nervous system means something we don't control. Right? So if I screamed really loud, I could have done that and just scared you, but you'd have an adrenaline rush. You couldn't control it. I should have did that. Ah! (laughs) See? So what happens is our autonomic nervous system, it does something we can't control. This is what blushing is like. So when we're growing up, there, we, there's things like being shy, right? And it's cute, you know, when you see innocence of little kids and they're shy and, and they blush. And, but, you know, you heard the phrase, somebody who wears their feelings on their sleeves or emotions on their sleeves. Blushing is like that. So if, some, you know, somebody goes into a job interview and they're all of a sudden all red, you ask them a question, they turn red, you're like, that's something going on there. It's because what happens is some sort of stimulus fires off the adrenal gland, which opens up your capillaries, which, which bring blood flow to an area and make you look red. And Jeremiah was saying, people don't blush anymore. And when I read that, I was just, I was thinking about, it's, it's so amazing 
to me, just there's so many ways I can go with this, but I was just thinking bad words, right? Many of you had really bad potty mouths. Can I see it? No, just kidding. You don't, you don't have to do a show of hands. And then you got saved. And I, maybe I'm wrong, but I know people that tell me, I used to cuss really bad. I used to, you know, use certain words as adjectives to describe everything. And then I got saved. I don't cuss anymore. But there was a time where, maybe a little before my time, where if you cussed in front of a female, you might get punched out. Today, these words that they would say, you you cuss like a sailor. These words are so common now. And they are used. People don't blush anymore. And, And I know, you know, like, when you get saved... You change inside so much, you're sensitive to certain things. It just bothers you. And, you know, sometimes we say, I don't want to, I don't go to R-rated movies, and you probably shouldn't. But it, it should hurt us when you, you're watching a movie and they're saying the F word all the time. Like, we shouldn't be okay with that. When we're, when we're on social media and you just, are constantly seeing words like that and you're comfortable and you start to you know use those in your vernacular those those should be shocking right but see when when extreme things move into the mainstream and people aren't blushing anymore and, and then we just get comfortable with those things the, the proverbial frog in cold water and then you turn it up slowly and it Next thing you know, it's boiling and you, they don't move because they don't realize it's hot. You get used to it. And we have to be so careful about the things we get used to. Because we live now, I, when I was growing up, pretty much, you know, I, I remember growing up and I would watch sitcoms with my parents at night. And pretty much, you know, they're pretty much okay. But I don't know now if you can actually do that. I don't. I mean, the, the, the commercials that and you know, I don't want. I'm not making this like a whole like moral thing. I'm I'm making it like like the scripture is saying. It's when we get to a place where where sin is so normal and we're actually comfortable with it, and we don't get that impulse like like when we see something like assaulting to our eyes or see something that is, or hear something that is just assaulting. I mean, some of the most popular songs in our culture, if you want to do some research, look at the number one songs and look at the lyrics. And it, That's where we are. That's where we are as a culture. Now, when the church is okay with that, and the church is the same as that, there's a big controversy uh, controversy out now because a, a real cool, hip, famous pastor guy was speaking at a conference and was cussing. And that actually has become a, a thing, I would say, maybe in the last 10 years or so, where pastors would 
would cuss and people think that's cool. And, you know, it's like they get it. And, you know, people are saying, well, that's just being masculine. And, you know, that's just, I don't know. When the, when the church is like the world, there should be some kind of signal that something's wrong. And especially, with, like I said, if you have a pastor that's cussing and that has been become in vogue, what about people who, who God has saved and they used to cuss and now they're pastors in the pulpit cussing, bringing the holy word of God? But see, you know what happens is the church starts discussing and starts having theological debates about this. If you have to have a theological debate about that, this... I don't know how to argue into, you know, that being a thing. That's that's your problem. There's so many things like that in the Christian church that, you know, that we just have to start talking about and debating and, and discussing theology when it, it's just so clear. You know, when the church embraces same-sex marriage and the LGBT thing, that's a church that's lost. That's not a... A church that theologically is shaded one way or another. That's a lost church. That's a church where God's not in that anymore. That's a church that God has removed his candlestick. And we're going to see more and more of those things. And so we have to be careful that we don't end up being, losing our blushing over things that are profane. And next thing you know, those are just a regular part of our life. So this is the charge that he's bringing, and, and he says they will break they will break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. And if you notice in verse two, it just he's kind of summing up the Ten Commandments there. And when he says with uh, bloodshed upon bloodshed, that means blood touching blood, probably referring to people doing bad things to their own families. And that's often the case in families when someone comes to the Lord and starts walking with the Lord, the family can come against them. In the the Psalms, I can't remember, I think it's Psalm 63, but it says the reproaches that were meant for Christ will fall on those who follow Christ. Meaning, when you're walking with the Lord, the bad treatment people have for Christ will end up being your bad treatment. And that can often happen in families as well. In verse 3, it says, Therefore therefore the land will mourn. Remember, God gave them this land. The land will mourn. And everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now, this is interesting. The promised land, which you can go to, which we are, Lord willing, going to in 2022, you can go there. And when the Jews are in the land, the land does well. When the Jews are out of the land, land doesn't do well. Isn't that amazing? And so the, the land now is flourishing. When we went, our guide said, I've never seen things this green, this lush in his whole life. He's, I think he's around 30-something. 
And he, he's lived there his whole life. He said, this is it's amazing. Before the Jews went back, it was desolate. It was terrible. It wasn't a place anybody would ever go. So verse 4, it says, Now let no man contend or rebuke another. For your people are like those who contend with the priest. So what he's saying is, the people won't listen to their leaders, their religious leaders. And that's demonstrating their rebellious nature, their rebellious heart. They've lost respect for their religious leaders. So what he's saying is that you don't have any grounds to actually talk to another person about their sin because you're in rebellion against God. So how are you going to talk to other people? It's kind of like the the speck, the plank in your eye and that whole thing. It's like, you know, you just, it, it, you're losing your credibility to talk to other people is what he's saying. Because you, you don't respect authority. You, you're, you don't respect those who are in these positions that have been called by God. But he says, therefore, you shall stumble in your day. There's no other way to go when, when we rebel against God. The only way that there is is stumbling. It says, the prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. And I will destroy your mother, which is a reference to the nation. So what that's saying is that the prophets also, so they've fallen. The leadership is bad. And one indication of a nation that's in trouble, and and maybe as you're reading this, and you're seeing what God's judgment is on a nation which outwardly looks okay, but inwardly is about to die, is almost dead. There's, uh, you can really put our country's name in there, and I think you could say the same thing. But see, when uh, to me it seems like the tipping point is when the church gets corrupt, when the church is bad. And that's what we see here. The prophets are bad. Their religious leaders are bad. Now, when that happens, then say uh, in our culture, if the church is weak and worldly, then where do people go to find the truth, to find hope, to find God? Where do they go? The church is to be that. And that's why we've made a commitment the best we can by the power of the Holy Spirit to let God be in charge, to not get caught up in the fads and the the things that uh, the idea of just trying to attract all these people to the church as much as you can. It doesn't matter how you do it. We want to maintain the integrity of God here. We want this to be a place where people can find God and not find a nightclub. People need to come out of their nightclub. They don't need to find that in a church. And so that's why we teach the word of God. This, We know this works, right? We know everybody's not going to be into it, but we know this works. We know anybody, as it was told in Joshua, that anybody who will be about God's word and apply it to their life, they will be prosperous and have good Success that their life will be exactly what God has wanted it to be, and that is amazing. 
doesn't mean it will be easy. Actually, it will be the opposite. But it will mean that that life, that person, will live for the purposes that God has put them on earth for. So in verse 6, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. You see that? So it's not like, oh, I didn't go to the right school. I'm not smart. I'm just, you know, people tell me stuff and I don't get it. It's not that at all. It's because you're rejecting knowledge. That's very important. But verse 6 is one you want to highlight because it says, My people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. So this is talking about Israel, but we can look at at the church then. And we know this from Revelation and the seven churches. God's church will fail when the church doesn't know him personally and becomes more outward as far as trying to look cool, trying to be important, trying to please the world, that that church will be weak inside. But when a, a church is filled with the knowledge of God, which by the way, it reminds me, if you ever get a chance, read The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. It might be probably my favorite all-time book, but top three or four for sure, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. But see, when a church is filled with the knowledge of God, and we're not just talking about intellect, right? We're talking about knowing Him personally. What happens is then you you have the power of the Holy Spirit working with that knowledge, working with the experience of God based on the truth of God, bringing about the revelation of God, bringing about the light of God. Then you have something really special, and that's what we want to have here. But it says, because you have rejected knowledge. So that becomes on each individual, right? So we're going to do what we do here and give you the opportunity. But then each person has to take personal responsibility for their personal relationship with God. But also then think about the bigger picture. Think Think about our country. Because you have rejected knowledge. So... Something very interesting there. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will no longer, or I'm sorry, I will forget your children. So, here's the question. Where is the United States in God's eyes right now? That's the question. I'm going to leave that hanging for a little bit. And I'm not sure I'm going to give you the direct answer, but I'm going to, we're going to go somewhere to flush that out a little bit. But verse 7, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. So the children of Israel, God blessed them and they grew and, and just, they took all of their, their growth and the good things that God did, and they used that not for God, but actually against God. So here's another question. 
Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Who are we using what God has given us for? And I want to suggest to you that whatever you have, use that for the Lord. Because that's why you have it. And that's when what you have will be used according to the purpose that you've been given what you've had. And then get this. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people and set their heart on their iniquity. That means they're they're proud and stubborn and they're not going to budge. And this is why God is doing such a radical thing with Hosea and Gomer. It's because he still wants to get their attention. And we have to be very careful. God doesn't have to go to these lengths to get our attention. And especially that we don't, we're not people that aren't satisfied with God himself. Because if we're not, then we're going to look for some cheap substitute. And that cheap substitute can have the tendency to take us a long, far way we don't want to go. In verse 9 it says, And it shall be like people, like priests. Meaning, the religious leaders were no different. So I will punish them for their ways, and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase. Because they have ceased obeying the Lord. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if you don't obey the Lord, and you you go out and do your own thing, it's always going to come up short as far as satisfying you. In the book of Haggai, it's equated to putting money in your pockets with holes in them. And this is this is what we can do. We can go out and say, if, if this happens and this happens and this happens, then I'll be satisfied and then I'll be full, then I'll be okay. And you never will be unless you're satisfied with God. And you know what? When you're satisfied with God, it's amazing how satisfied you will be with everything else. But if you're not satisfied with God, you will never be satisfied with anything else. There will not be one thing that will come in your life that you say, okay, now it's good. Because if you're not satisfied with God, not one single earthly, material, temporal thing will fill that void that only God can fill. He made us like that. He made us so that only He could fill our heart. But man, when we're satisfied with God, everything else is amazing. And notice what what is the reason for that satisfaction. He says, obeying the Lord. So then in verse 11, it says, harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave 
the heart. See, that's what we do. When we're not satisfied with God, we're going to look for something else to satisfy us. And all that does is enslave us. He says, my people ask counsel from their wooden idols and their staff, which is a diviner's rod, informs them for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray and they have played the harlot against their God. So this is, this is when we don't seek the scriptures and we don't pray and ask God to show us the way, but now we're going into secular ways to try to figure out things. We're looking for secular gurus and secular people who are authorities and know all these things. The church should never do that because these are all poor counterfeits. And worse than that, these are counterfeits of darkness. I should say they're counterfeits of light, but they're darkness. They're they're giving you false reasons and false ideologies not to put your trust in the Lord. And they're all over the place. They're all out there. And if you're willing, they would like your business. But see, we don't need to do that. We have everything that we need in the Scriptures and with the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 13, they offer sacrifices on the mountains and they burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, and terebinths. These are all certain types of trees where they would go and do these sacrifices. And notice this, it says, because their shade is good. Man, that is so telling. This is what we do. This this is more comfortable. This is easier. So we make compromises in our faith. We can compromise in the church we attend or the people we yoke with unequally. Compromise because we say, oh, this is no big deal. There's shade here. This is easy. This is no big deal. And we don't know. We're actually, in some instances, we're actually worshiping false gods. We have idols. There's a lot to say about that, but we need to move on. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor bridges, or I'm sorry, brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. And so what this is saying is that it's not just women that are going to be judged, but the men will be judged too. But notice this. There's a demonic element to sexual immorality. We see that in the text. And it's interesting how throughout the whole Bible we we see sexual immorality as one of the big things that God, I'm sorry, that Satan uses to bring people away from God. And then the justification of it and, you know, and, and we're getting bombarded with all of these um, messages and messaging in the world. And, and just understand, God has ordained 
sexual interactions to be holy and sacred, and that's why Satan attacks it. But there's a demonic element involved with sexual immorality. So then he says in verse 15, he says, Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. So that was the southern part. So he, he's saying to the southern part, Judah, he's saying, Israel's offending, but don't follow them. You don't have to be like them is what he's saying. And he says, do not come up to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon. So that would be the southern kingdom. These were the, they would have to go north to the northern kingdom to these spots which were known for idol worship. He's saying, don't come here. Don't even get near here. Just don't follow their lead. He says, don't swear an oath saying as the Lord lives. And in other words, don't mix and don't try to make this like you're doing a holy thing. For Israel, verse 16, is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. So because they're so stubborn, that's really what it comes down to, that God's going to give them over and they're going to suffer the repercussions of their rejection of God. And you will see this. And people who reject God, they become in many cases aimless, purposeless, floating around, no purpose, struggling to find their identity and what they're here for. It's a, it's a terrible thing to see. So then in verse 17, Ephraim, which is an AKA for the northern kingdom, was the largest tribe of the northern kingdom. So Ephraim is joined to idols. And that word joined is yoked. The Bible says don't be unequally yoked. And then he says, let him alone. You might want to circle that. You don't ever want God to say that to you. Let him alone. This is God giving them over because of their rejection, finally saying, you can have, you just let him go. Let him go and do what he wants to do. It says, they drink, their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her in its wings. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So the wind, it's like a tornado of sin and debauchery that's taking them away from God quicker and quicker. And like a tornado, it keeps accumulating things in it. But just, that's all we're going to say But for that. But So here's the real question. And I, I, I want you tonight or sometime read Romans 1 verses 18 to the end. And in that you'll see this phrase. Think there's three times, I think maybe four times, three times for sure. And it says God gave them over. What does that mean? That means that they're under judgment. If you read through that section and you read through this section and you understand the heart, mind, will, and God, no matter how things may look outwardly in our country, 
I would have to conclude that we are under judgment. It fits. And so what's the answer for that? The answer starts with drawing a circle around where you're sitting. Like Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and the like, they didn't change the course of their nation. But they changed the course of their own lives and several around them. So we don't know what's going to happen. But we do know we're in very trying times right now. These trying times should give us a sense of urgency, one, to live our own life out in obedience to the Lord, to be satisfied with the Lord, and to ask God to use our life for His glory and for His kingdom. But don't be caught up in the things of the world. Don't be caught up in in a way where we're missing what's really important in life. And you and I are going to be tempted time and time again to get pulled into worldly thinking, earthly thinking. You remember what Jesus told Peter when Peter first said, you're the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. And he said, Uh, Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then right after that, Jesus said, I'm going to suffer and die. And then Peter said, no, you're not going to do that. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Get this. For you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of earth. And he was saying, that's satanic. That was Satan driving that attitude. So we have to have the attitude that we have to be mindful of the things of God his will, understand this isn't our home and understand we have a role to play. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us so that we can make an influence and an impact. And whatever's going to happen to our country and the election and the world, you know, this world's not our home and we have to pray and ask God to have mercy on us. But at the end of the day, God already knows what's going to happen. So be at peace, be at rest, love God, love people, keep it simple, and enjoy your relationship with God. It just gets better and better and better. So let's pray. God bless you guys, and um, we'll get out of here. Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for using Hosea to share these truths with us. And I pray, Lord, that we too would have a role in such a time as this to play. And I pray, Lord, for our friends and our loved ones who are not walking with you. I pray, Lord, that you would call them to repentance, that you would convict them of their sins, that they would fall on their knees before you, that you would break their stubbornness and their idols and bring them into a right relationship with you. I pray for our church that we would be a light in our community, that you would use us as a powerful, mighty instrument in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great night.